But, but just one follow-up there. I mean, we, we did live with text for about 200 years, and we're fine. <laughs> what happened? I guess we went from writing prose, we wrote books and articles and stories, to just conversations. We didn't used to write one line. Yo, how's it going? <laughs> you know, that's not what we used to do by text. We'd write a long letter, and we'd spend a week writing it, and we'd post it off, and we'd spend a lot of attention. But now we, we just go back and forth. It, it's replaced the day-to-day communication, talking, conversation. So that's, that's the difference. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think there is kind of a problem in terms of how software deals with emotions. I think there's some antiquated thoughts around, especially business or enterprise software, needing to be cold, needing to be professional because you are at work and you should not be doing anything but working. Obviously, people found other ways to not work. Uh, <laughs> and we all knew it. There was a water cooler and that became like a thing that we would circle around. We'd talk about television, all these ways that we could express our personal beliefs or our tastes. But, you know, I think now we're starting to see a shift where it's okay to be a little human in the software, it's okay to bring your whole self to work every day, you know what I mean, um, and express yourself in these certain ways. So I think it is lightening up a little bit, but I do think that um, software in general has kind of a, a cold streak that is slowly warming up. Yeah, I mean, I just love to see it expand. I mean, I love to see people... Um, I, I feel like some people are not very... I don't know if it's like they're not very good writers or what it is, but sometimes they have a hard time articulating what it is they're trying to say, and they can't put it into words. And so sometimes just an animated GIF or something. I mean, we actually use Slack on our design team at uh, Mailchimp all the time, and you go through our feed, and it's pretty much all just slash giffy something slash giffy something. <laughs> and we're just we do that all day long, and it's because it's efficient, it's quick, and it is actually kind of funny and it's humorous, and it's also kind of like rolling a dice. You never know exactly what you're going to get. Sometimes giffy's spot on, and sometimes it's like, well, that was awkward. Like, what was that? Sorry. Um, so sometimes the expression doesn't doesn't quite line up, but um, yeah. So in general, I think it's um, it's something that we use a lot, and something that um, uh, we use to communicate internally. So, but does it reflect a change in the society, in the way we work, in the way we consider work? Is it, are we less formal, less top-down? Is, is, is it? I mean, it is yeah. funny how, you know, grown-ups are, yeah. are speak teenage language, or it's funny how old institutions start using a very young language, and there's a class there. Yeah. It's also because something is changing. It's not only technology. Yeah, this is something that I actually struggle with on, on my team, because I, I manage a lot of uh, junior people who grew up in the digital age and are accustomed to texting and are accustomed to communicating that way all day long and if left alone they will sit there at their desk all day with their headphones on from nine to five (laughs) just texting you know and talking in slack talking in hip chat whatever else and and they will be there all day and they're totally fine doing it and there are times in the day where you know they are like hitting me with so many questions and so many things and i see it and I'll just get up from my desk and I'll walk over to their desk and they're, and they're still going. And I'm like standing behind them watching them, you know, and just kind of tap them on the shoulder and be like, can we just talk about this? Like, <laughs> this is going to be so much faster and easier. And they're like, oh yeah, sorry. And so you kind of, I think you forget people get into those worlds and they, um, kind of, you almost have to remind them about human interaction, but, um, <laughs> it's a weird thing, yeah. but I, I don't know if it's generational or what, but I think, um, for me, I try to break out of that world whenever I can. 
So please just uh, yell out, come up with the arm whenever you have a question. And there are no stupid questions. There are only the ignorance of not asking questions. And I know that. I'm a reporter, so I do make stupid questions a living. Um, <laughs> so whatever you sort of been um, having of questions for the last day and a half, please uh, just uh, come out. No one? Oh, the wink and how it was just enough. Um, when is it too much emotion and um, where do your company see yourselves in like five years from now? Will the emotion be more present or yeah. what do you think will happen like with the uh, evolution? I think um, th that's actually a... a a general problem that we have with the company because the, the company keeps getting bigger. We keep hiring more people. We continue to scale. And so we're starting to do more advertising campaigns, more big media campaigns. And the trick is, like, how do you retain those values and that character that you had that made you special when you were a startup during all these small years? And how do you scale that? And how do you make it um, still relatable? You know, an example that I use a lot, because I, I come from a music background, is, you know, think about bands that successfully made the leap from being, like, a small indie band to suddenly playing stadiums. And, like, you know, I think, like, a band like Radiohead, like, fits that really well. Like, somehow they were able to retain those core values and are still popular uh, just on a mass scale. And so with the wink and, like, that type of uh, character, it's just something where I have found that we have to have people internally at the company that understand the brand and really understand when too much is too much. They're almost like tastemakers, so to speak. You know, an engineer in the room would be like, well, what do they do all day? <laughs> you know, like, I write code. What does that guy do, you know? And it's like... There are particular people in particular positions in the company that know when too much is, is too much. And they're like, if, if it bends one way too far this way or this way, it could come across as being kind of lame or just being kind of tired or um, or just, I don't know. I think you see that in a lot of companies like banks, you know, that are trying to be cute, you know, and try to be funny. And it comes across as kind of weird, you know, and he's like, this is my bank, you know, why is my bank talking to me this way? Um, and that's just, that's that taste level, and and so I think that's where the wink comes in. It's We always zero back in on that element. Yeah, and I think um, it's funny, you know, seeing five years in the future, I, I can't really do it, uh, I don't think, with any accuracy, but I think it's so ingrained at Slack to build software for humans and make it feel human. I mean, there's obviously a fine line. Um, there's a lot of very smart people, you know, focused on voice and tone, and it's very embedded in our design team and our product teams to speak a certain way and know when to not speak that way. Um, I'm going to give you a little preview of something from my talk and say that, you know, there's a very fine line between friendly and annoying, and the thing that pushes us over it is frequency. If I'm getting a bunch of errors, I don't want you to be jovial and like, whoops, sorry about that. Like, you're actually ruining my day. It's the time to be serious and like, you know, knowing that line I think is a really important thing and, and it really just takes like an embedded team who truly like Todd says, like understands the brand understands the voice and nuance that needs to, to go into it to achieve that. I don't have much to add here. <laughs> <laughs> I will say one thing though that uh, that surprisingly enough, Emojipedia we don't 
the website is 100% serious and 100% straight because the first version was kind of humorous and make a joke about this. It was just me writing it. And I'm like, oh, this is a bit funny. Look at this one. But people use it as a reference. So even though we have fun on the back channels, on Twitter, on Facebook, Emojipedia, 100% straight. It's the it's a boring-looking website because people use it as a reference. And mm-hmm. so we, we don't go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are the responsible ones so you guys can have fun. Andrew from Google said yesterday that designed to take up as little attention as possible. And, and, and I guess that you don't quite agree because, I mean... Humor takes up a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. A monkey certainly does. Um, so, so what is the balance between discrete design and, and putting in the tone and voice and personality? Where is the balance between the two? Um, well, like I was saying, I mean, I, th- I think it's all about um, just having people who are just really tied in to to the values and understanding. Uh, and are and are aware of when we're going too far. This is this is actually something that I didn't really talk about yesterday. But like when I talked about how we had two different logos for the company and how we had a signature and we had a mascot. And something I've seen over and over again is when we hire junior designers, they come in and they put Freddie on everything. <laughs> and it's because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And it's like, okay, that's cool, but it's kind of like playing the same note over and over again. And we don't want to be Geico. Like we, I don't know if you have Geico here insurance, but with the lizard, you know what I'm talking oh, yeah. about. Okay. Um, like we don't want to just, we don't want it to be so overbearing where Freddie gets old. You know, Freddie is still supposed to be fun and, and kind of like this almost like a treat, you know. I didn't show a picture of it yesterday, but we actually did a campaign where we just bought billboards just all over the com- all over the country and we actually did billboards in like small towns where there really were not that many people and honestly we didn't get that much value out of the ad buy but we put Freddie there. We didn't say MailChimp. We didn't say anything. We just stuck Freddie on a billboard, and people loved it. Like people were like, "Ah, oh, you know, this is amazing," and they felt like we were talking to them. So for me, it's always a balance, and it's a constant question I get from designers: of like, should I use the word mark, or should I use Freddie? And that's a very hard thing uh, to describe when you have these two pieces. I can empathize there for sure. Uh, uh, there is that that feeling when somebody new starts at Slack and they are aware of the voice. They've seen it executed in these really good ways, but it is really hard to execute. And and design, I think, should be generally quite transparent. It should seem kind of invisible. Um, it doesn't mean your software can't have personality. Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Uh, but in other, you know, to, to empathize with Todd, there, it's like. Sometimes you just want to create a feature or a flow that achieves a goal. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be whimsical. It doesn't have to be playful. Yeah. It should be thoughtful, um, but it doesn't mean you need to go full bore all the time. It's a, knowing the time and place, again, uh, is very important. Sure. We, I have a follow-up question I really want to get to, but we'll just go... Right, down there first. Just stop with the follow-up question. Okay. Uh, just, just because you just mentioned it, and I'm just curious to... How do you actually, like on a very concrete project, work with humor? I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing is like discussion on taste is really tricky, but there's nothing as tricky as humor. Um, yeah. How I do you do that? I mean, the designing of humor or tone? 
I, I've actually done this with a, a couple of projects. Before I worked at MailChimp, I founded a um, this new network for Turner called Superlux that was connected with Cartoon Network and Adult Swim. And we had a similar thing where, and this is, we still do this at MailChimp actually, where we basically get a spreadsheet and we just write the copy. It was like, if I was a business person writing this, let's just do it just vanilla, boring. And we put it all into a spreadsheet and we just list everything. And there's particular people in the company that I can share that spreadsheet with. And I'd be like, just do your thing. Like, <laughs> make this magical, make this relatable, make this human, make this, you know, humorous and fun. And they go away and they come back and they'll do their versions to the right of it. And then we adjust it from there. But you have to start with something like, like if you were just in a normal business, what would you write? And then you just have to find ways to subtly tweak it. It's like a punch-up, you know, when they get mm -hmm. comedy writers to punch up scripts. Exactly. To basically be like, this is a little too boring. I need you to inject a little bit here because the audience is going to be seeing a little bit of a dead zone for this yeah. next one, 20 minutes or so. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, we have product writers too, actually, at Slack. That uh, is a what? product writers. Um, it's a growing team. Um, essentially, it used to be uh, focused pretty much. The product design team would be doing the writing. We'd have design reviews, and we would be so stringent. We'd talk more about the language that we were using, whether humor was correct, whether like you know playfulness was correct in this context, more so than we'd talk about the UI in a lot of cases, mm. um, which I think was the biggest eye opener for me working at Slack. Um, but I'm sorry, I'm kind of losing the plot of the question. <laughs> what was, it was the designing of humor. How do you work with how, how you actually yeah. work with that carefully? I think is the answer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, on your tiptoes. I think again, this it's it's working with a product designer, working with a product writer now, which we're lucky enough to have. Um, They're very good at reeling us in. It's like a little bit of push and pull, um, yeah. but it's a very iterative process. Um, you know, you can spend weeks on getting the the, uh, the writing just right. So you both work at international companies, and, 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 and one thing is taste in Finland and, and in yes. Atlanta, yes. but, but humor time. in yes. Finland and Atlanta. Big time. Yes, that's, that is a real problem we, we've run into yeah. before, where um, I think especially in England for some reason, I don't think they really <laughs> jive. I think we're like, oh, it's just like that stupid monkey, you know? Like they don't, <laughs> I don't know what it is. No fun. Um, <laughs> like like one, one additional point I'd like to make is like one of my favorite things to see on my team is um, when we are doing prototypes and we're designing ideas for features, mm -hmm. I encourage all of the designers to write their own copy. Mm -hmm. You know, like, don't do lorem ipsum. You know, everybody does lorem ipsum. Don't even use a lorem ipsum generator. Like, act as if you are the brand and the voice and actually come up with your own labels and your own titles and your own copy. And every now and then, they'll strike on something just magical. And we'll run it. Like, we have product writers. We have uh, writers on the marketing team, too. And we'll run it by them, and they'll be like, I don't need to change a thing. Like, this is great. And they might tweak a couple of things. So I love it whenever copy gets into our app that was actually made by a designer um, and uh, it was not actually written by someone else. That's always fun to see. Cool. It seems that both uh, Slack and, and uh, MailChimp have really great cultures that really shine through in your brand. How do you keep that culture alive, and how do you pass it on to new employees you want to start? I can start, I guess, yeah. That's a tough question, um, and I totally agree. I, I, I will say the culture at Slack is one that is welcoming, it's transparent, it's 
just like lovely to work there. Um, you know, obviously the core few that started, um, and you know, as the company grows, you you have these pockets. The design team itself was, you know, quite small up until recently. There's a lot of baked in, you know, institutional knowledge there. Um, but more than anything, I, I think it's just actually living by the values that you actually portray as your company values. Um, it's a lot harder to say than, or sorry, a lot harder to do than to say. Um, you know, there's likely some very large conglomerates that have, you know, uh, empathy massively printed on a wall somewhere, and whenever anybody walks by it, they kind of like scoff mm-hmm. and, you know, don't really believe it. Um, but I think, you know, when you track really well to your values and you actually live by them, it's it's pretty easy for it to permeate uh, as you grow as a company. You know, we have a lot of smart people who think about how we're going to scale because, you know, we are rapidly growing, and that's, that's always generally a concern. Um, but uh, so far, so good. I think what we have noticed uh, at MailChimp is that um, anyone that's new, it generally takes them about a year <laughs> to understand what is going on because they come into the environment and they think they know what they're getting into and they think they know what the relationships are like and you just don't and it, it takes months and months and months. I sometimes refer to it as it's almost like an oral history of sorts. Like we don't really have a mechanism or a book that we hand somebody and say, this is the culture or like there's nothing like that. And, and perhaps we should create something like that, but I don't even know what would go in it. I mean, it's, it's just something you have to kind of live in for a while and understand. It's almost like moving to a different country and it just takes you some time. So that's really the hardest thing. It's really an oral history. And I think it helps having people in, um, particular positions like as a manager or a director that are able to uh, pass that message along. In newspapers, you say it's in the walls. So you get in there and you feel it and, and yeah. there's no real way to put it in, to document it yeah. and put it down anywhere. Yeah. yeah. There was a question back there. Thanks. <clears throat> Um, you touched a bit on this yesterday about changing your tone of voice depending on an action that the user is taking. Yeah. But have you investigated or have any thoughts on how you might use machine learning or artificial intelligence to then change the way you respond? Uh, I think it's interesting because there has been a lot of press and a lot of attention recently on bots and on automating that process somehow. And this is actually something that I've been interested in, and I've been talking to people internally about at MailChimp because I feel like we have been doing voice and tone for so long, and we've been in this game of of thinking about how we communicate with people and making it a more personal experience, that of all companies, that hopefully we should be able to do it well, and we should be able to make this automatic somehow and turn it into some type of chatbot or whatever it is. I I don't know. I'm not even sure what the application is. Um, But everyone seems to want to do it for some reason. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, we we researched it. I mean, I actually had an intern um, this past summer work on some things in that regard and I think for us we've yet to find like a really solid use case for it um, there's still something about uh, having that that human centered kind of like hand and voice in there crafting the message as opposed to turning it into a machine based system um, I'm, I'm intrigued by it I would love to find ways to 
make it happen. I was actually having a discussion last night over dinner, as a matter of fact, about <laughs> something to this degree with a lot of the folks yesterday that spoke about the future of, you know, generative design or um, even Andrew's talk about, you know, creating something that doesn't exist yet. We're just like, we're postulating what could possibly be done with, you know, we start talking about like, oh, maybe designers are going to be losing their jobs because X or Y exists. But then what we started to really talk about was like, well, what about A-B testing? What about A-B-C-D-E? Whatever, like, you know, A to X testing. What would happen if, you know, you could actually generate, you know, based off of a certain amount of variance, either language or design compositions, something that would just like test, 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 and then all of a sudden like cut down the bottom 10%, only present these designs, start like actually working them into these sort of uh, different layers and shapes. And you could surely do that with language. I am certainly not smart enough to do that, um, but I, I could see it as a possibility um, and really tuning the language. And who knows, especially in international markets, that could be something really useful to understand what works, mm -hmm. what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be the one to write it, but somebody smart could, I'm sure. Could you say also that last maybe 10, 15 years, we spent so much time doing personalized technology that is almost this whole discussion we're having here is also sort of just going the opposite direction. Instead of personalized, you're going personality. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's too very, like, as opposed to getting on a platform that's just always reflecting yourself. All of a sudden, there is someone out there that you actually meet. There is, it's not just a platform that reflects yourself. There's, a, there's an actual personality on the other end. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. it's scary we have uh, we, we, <laughs> we launched a, a bot for emojipedia called botmoji and people can ask it emoji questions <laughs> and it's it's a really it's a really simple implementation you send any emoji it will tell you what it is but it's amazing how much you give it a name and a face and so it's called botmoji technically she's female there's nothing about it we just call her her um but people argue with her all the time. <laughs> they'll say, yeah. what is this emoji? Yeah. And she'll say, oh, it's the, it's the smirking face. And they'll go, no, it's not. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's amazing that as soon as you add a bit of personality to anything, suddenly it takes on a life of its own. Nobody argues with our Emojipedia account with a human there, but yeah. it's a bot with a personality and sometimes she might give a sassy response or she might shut somebody down. And yeah, they'll just argue with her even though she clearly only has about 10 things to say. But it's, it's, it's just amusing that you put the face on it. Similar to Slackbot, I think. Yeah. You have like proposals, uh, like I can't remember what the number is right now, of like wedding proposals or <laughs> engagement proposals to Slackbot, and it's up in the hundreds for sure. Yeah, I mean, Slackbot, <laughs> I'd propose to Slackbot. Yeah, me too. Maybe it was me. Slackbot's chill. Yeah. yeah. We have a question back there. I found found it interesting that you never thought about multiracial uh, emojis. Um, what do you think is the future of emojis? Are we going to get so many that we don't know what to do with them anyway? Or because there's so many different races, there's so many different cultures, there's so many backgrounds. When is enough enough on the emoji? Yeah, it's impossible question. Hey, um, so I mean, right now the. The goals of Unicode generally are about ticking off the biggest chunks first. So race was a huge one, especially because people were white. If they were just all yellow, then maybe we could just say there were, never was race in emoji. Let's not introduce something new. But it was like the Simpsons or something. Yeah. yeah. Even though there's, all, there's still a, an ongoing sort of debate, is yellow uh, um, a version of white or is yellow really non-racial? But nonetheless, it's too late. Emoji's got itself in a big hole that it started out with genders and with skin tones and we're slowly digging out. So yeah, we got the skin tones. This year was gender. And probably the next big thing is like the, these cultural aspects that, yeah, there are foods in every country around the world. And mm -hmm. if you add everything, it's ridiculous. You're going to have this giant keyboard. So I don't know where the line is, but 
To me, it seems clear that some of the benefit of emoji is that it is a limited set. But I don't want to be the person that says, that's it. I don't want to be the guy that says, no more, guys. We've done it. We're finished. So I don't envy the person whose job that is <laughs> because inevitably someone's going to miss out. So, so far to answer the question, though, just every year chipping away at new things and hoping that it covers a greater and greater percent until we're just left as fringe items. Okay. Anyone else? By the way, now we just had the race issue up. Then there, if you notice that as with any um, panel on a technology conference, there's all men up here. So if there's a woman with two questions and a comment, please come up here and take a seat. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have a question for Jeremy. Uh, first of all, a great talk. Great talk. <clears throat> Um, um, I want to know if you see any disadvantages of emojis because um, some well-known German uh, graphic designers or typographers like Erich Spiekermann uh, also criticize the development in the use of emojis. So we forget our language and forget how to speak. And uh, also uh, a topic uh, a couple of minutes ago was like how do employees speak at the, at the uh, employee or with other colleagues and something like that and uh, yeah I want to know your opinion on that right um, I think it's pretty clear that emoji is a shorthand it's definitely it's an abbreviation it's, it's something that we can use in general for communication for quicker communications and what Instagram looked at last year when they were analyzing all their emoji data is that it wasn't replacing real words it was replacing internet speak people were using less lol and they were putting in laughing face. So at least as far as the stats that I can see seem to back up that it's, if anything, it's removing the last scourge, the last generation when I was growing up, they'd be in the newspaper, what do these terrible acronyms mean, what are the teens saying, and it's replacing more of that. But you can't hold it back, people are going to do what they want to do, you know, you don't, don't tell people what to do. If people want to use emojis, they can. If, if a workplace or if a person finds that offensive or if they don't want to do that, then that's up to them, but it's not like schools are teaching how to use emojis. That, you know, I think it's probably a bit overblown to say, not that you're saying that, but if that's the argument that emoji is somehow ruining language, then I think language has bigger issues to think about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that, is that the, the grain of... Yeah, yeah, great. But just like, you, you had the Hillary thing in your, just before, and, and it's, it's weird that there's... I think what emojis does, and I think there's nothing surprising in, in people having personality, but it's, it's strange that a newsletter company yeah. all of a sudden has a personality. So there are certain expectations that we have to who's stiff, who's supposed to be boring, who has certain attitudes. Yeah. And I think that's also what happens with emojis, that you have certain idea of formality that you sort of transcend somehow. They're definitely on the casual side of communication. If yes. you feel like you can communicate with somebody casually, Tick. Emojis are fine. If you're professional, probably know if you're in a staid, strict environment. It's just the middle bit, and everybody's line is obviously going to be different. To me, I don't care. I'll chuck emojis in anything. <laughs> but for people with real jobs, then, yeah, there is, a, there is a line somewhere, and I guess it's up to each company, each person, each country to decide where that line is. But and this, this may be kind of a, a, a cold way of looking at it, but uh, from a business perspective, there is real... 
uh, return on investment from using them because uh, MailChimp supports emoji and uh, subject lines. It was something we added, um, I think, about a year and a half ago now. And we've studied it, and we have a data science team that has actually been tracking, you know, what are the most popular ones that people use? What are the click rates? What are the open rates? How does this affect how well your newsletter and your marketing performs? And we have found that they actually do work. I mean, they really convert. I mean, people put them in subject lines, regardless of what you feel about them. For whatever reason, seeing an emoji in an inbox makes people more inclined to tap on it and to look at that email and to take action on it. So there is actually, like, regardless of your feelings, there's real data that suggests that you could probably sell more products or you could maybe do more with your uh, marketing and your email marketing specifically by using them. But couldn't that change real fast? I mean, yeah. the, the media company I work for use emojis every single day when we send out our MailChimp newsletter. Um, but it works now because you don't expect to see that from a news outlet. Yeah. But it, and, and you kind of get a feeling when you see it, this might be from my teenage daughter or something like that, yeah. right? Text message. And that's why you open it. So at some yeah. point when it does become sort of corporate language, it might not work in the same way. Yeah. It, it's hard when, when, when you are the company that is trying to democratize something that like some other marketing genius found to be true. Like they found the secret sauce to something and we're like, oh, we're going to democratize that and we're going to give that to everybody. <laughs> and then you do it and you ruin it almost because, I mean, like another example would be uh, we have scheduling in our app where you can actually send an email at a particular time on a particular day and we'll we'll tell you when is the optimum time to be doing this? Mm. And the problem is, is that sometimes that optimum time is the optimum time for a number of other people too. So <laughs> everyone kind of follows the same logic. And so some people we've watched uh, are interesting. Like they'll actually do the opposite of like what we're recommending <laughs> to see if their conversion is better. Um, but it's, it's yeah, it's interesting because it's like, yes, too much could totally be too much. It's like driving with uh, Google Maps when who all reroute you have another small trip because it's fast. Right, and then everybody no I want to go just back for one second and, and talk about the casualness of emoji just because it, it rung in my mind for a second. I agree that in communication it is definitely further on the, the, the casual scale. I think there's an interesting business case that we see pretty often in our actual Slack team. Uh, we use emojis for triage or for like marking GitHub pull requests as like I'm looking at it or I'm done and we're using it in very official ways but we're using it with like reactions which we allow you to react with any emoji. So it would be like you know red light, green light or eyes. You know what I mean? So there is like that other right. side where it's like sure it's shorthand but it doesn't have to be casual either. Yeah, it's got a technical advantage that it is everywhere that text is yeah. and you're right, the, the you can use it however you want to. Yeah. So it's, why is it any better than a letter or a, a punctuation yeah. if you use it in that context? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I kind of want to send you three guys out next door and do a little 10-minute workshop, come up with a subject line with emojis <laughs> for Deutsche Bank or something. <laughs> but before we do that, we'll just have a question back there. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say, Todd, I thought it was really interesting um, yesterday when you were talking about how you built empathy mm -hmm. by setting up a, an actual store. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if, Brandon, if you guys have done any sort of crazy experimental type things for building empathy with Slack, or do you just primarily rely on your own sort of usage of the tool? No, I mean, we are yeah. as empathetic as we possibly can be and are always seeking ways to empathize with our 
users and customers, um, you know, I think one thing that's really key, um, just day to day, and we've done this since the beginning, is that everybody does support. Um, which means that whether you're me or you're a designer or you're an engineer or a product manager, you spend time in Zendesk seeing what people are having trouble with. I mean, there is something amazingly humble, humbling about it because you're like, oh yeah, no, that was an obvious design. We shipped it, no big deal. You get 200 tickets about it the next day and you realize that your bias is what made it look really simple. Um, so I think that's like, it's not, Crazy, and we're not the only folks who do it. Uh, we don't go too wild with with that. I, we haven't built a store, and I don't know. I didn't get to hear your talk, so I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I've heard of like you know user experience experiments where somebody will build an actual you know uh, storefront or you know a place that you can experience to see how you feel. Um, but other than that, you know, we we just listen really intently. Uh, we do a lot of you know user research and interviews like that to to see how people really use the product, um, and and that really I think raises our empathy bar. Yeah, we actually do the same thing at Mailchimp. I'm I'm actually uh, as far as support goes because um before I worked at Mailchimp, um I used to run my own company and I would do support like at night with a laptop, you know, like sitting in bed or something and I did it every single day. <laughs> and I just it, it's it's just such a part of me and it's something that I'm always working with our support team. I mean, because we have hundreds of people in support, you know, 24/7 that are doing it. And it's something that I work with the designers on to try to get them exposed to the problems that people are having so we're not so siloed. Okay. We actually have an internal app in the company where you can go at any particular time, any like you're eating lunch, whatever, and you can just type in something like product recommendations or abandoned cart or campaigns or whatever, and you can go through everything and like get like the fire hose of like what everyone is saying and like griping about, and it's amazing. It's cathartic. I mean, it's and it's hard to do when you're a, a big company and you don't have so much of that exposure with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, talking about tone, uh, how would you uh, recommend transitioning to a more lighter tone in an application? Should you come up with a completely new um, texting way in the pop-ups, or should you transition slowly? That's a good question. You want to go? Um, I'll start just by saying that my first suggestion would be to make sure that the, that the lighter tone is appropriate for your audience and for the application that you are designing, because I, I think that may be like a, a, a sub-message in this theme that is not described is that, or has not been articulated too much, is that fun and friendly and casual may not work for everyone and may not be completely appropriate. And it all depends on the context of your business and what you're doing, um, because it, it, could, it could completely backfire and it may not work. If it works, though, and you find that that's what people want and that's what people are engaging with, um, I think it really comes down to copywriting. I think you just have to really sit down and put yourself in the mind of a character and think about how you interact you know, with friends of yours or how you would speak this in a non-corporate way. I, I, I kind of think a lot of us, you know, we go through school, we join companies, we try to be professional and we change the way that we speak. And I think you almost have to unlearn some of that. Um, I, that would be my suggestion. I would also suggest testing, like A-B testing your language. Mm -hmm. um, just getting a feel for what is kind of, you know, okay to interact with or what people are interacting or not interacting with. Um, yeah. It's a good barrier. I used to be a newspaper where, where, where the entire, all the journalists came together every morning and had a long discussion. And we were famous for having very long discussions in the morning, very, very long morning meetings. But the fun thing was that you could have a heated debate, a discussion, and it was really sort of 
whatever, you know, cartoons, whatever was on, on the subject, and we'd be yelling at each other for an hour and a half, and then next morning you saw the newspaper, and it came out in that weird newspaper speak, and it was boring, and it looked like something from, a, from you know, someone else could have done. There was no, yeah. the fire was gone, and there's something in that transformation from, like, initial discussion, idea, to that actually sort of, you know, very sort of... Uh, it- yeah, it sounds like design by committee. Exactly. It's the same concept of where you, the final design is oftentimes so watered down when you have too many designers collaborating on it. Yeah, that and also there's something in, in, in the newspaper language, specifically in that design, mm-hmm. in the way that the tone over years have been designed, that it's very sort of formal. And by that, loses that immediate and, and vibrant feeling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any questions? Yeah, uh, so I was just wondering... Uh, Wow, that's not <laughs> uh, how you work over time with, with your tone of voice. You mentioned A-B testing, uh, and you see what, what works for your company, what doesn't work, what people pick up on. But I guess over time, if, you, if you've got that quirkiness or the tongue-in-cheek approach, couldn't that also get really old? Much like you're saying about, about the emojis, maybe it's hard because no one uses it. Then whenever one uses it, it it's, it's lost its novelty. How, how do you work with that over time? I think A-B testing usually has a uh, sort of a short-sightedness for built sure. into it. Yeah. Um, like anything, like anything in design, um, a part of a product like that will evolve over time. I think things like that will generally get stale over a longer period. Um, but if you're paying quite like a lot of attention to it and you have a team that's thinking about it, you kind of just like ebb and flow with how to change it, how to reshift, how to refocus, um, ensuring that you're still keeping your personality, but maybe like updating some of your language or the ways that you communicate. I think it's just like revising designs or, you know, updating a whatever, a modal or something. You know, it does get a little stale. Maybe it doesn't work as well as you wanted to. You do a quick design pass um, and you know, lo and behold, it, it actually works really well again. Um, but isn't it a good question, though, that all of a sudden, you, without you realizing, you do become that weird uncle at the family party? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a valid concern. Um, or, you know, at the same time, like we're talking about once, you know, the voice and tone thing, um, if things lighten up just generally quite a lot, it, we could start seeing it being a lot more obvious or everywhere, in which case you are no longer individual, you are very much like these, you know, the sum of these parts over here. Um, it's just something to watch, you know. We, we we do this all the time with design. I think we should be pretty willing to do it with language. Yeah, I have the mic. Um, so, Jeremy, um, how do you make money on Emoju? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm guessing it's no longer like a passion project, or it is, but I'm guessing you're doing it full-time, and how does that work for you? Yeah. And uh, when when did you go full time? Right, so um, yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> I like it straight to the point. Um, you're right. It is it is my full time employment now, and there's five of us in total. No one full time. I was very dedicated to not make anybody full time. Everyone that works for the site, they have other projects. Our designer does other things. Our developer just. It doesn't need five people full-time, but it helps to have a variety of different people involved. Uh, the short answer is advertising. We have 15 million page views a month, and advertising pays terribly. <laughs> but if you get 15 million people, it adds up, is, is the, the extent of it. But in the early days, I literally remember the first few months of Emojipedia. I'd, I'd watch the ad revenue every day, and it would be one cent would literally be the ad revenue. And I'd be like, and then I doubled it to two cents a day. I'm like, yes! <laughs> 100%. <laughs> like, that is amazing. What happens if I could get this up to sort of 10 or $20 a day? And it did, and it just kept going. And 
now obviously there's more overheads of servers and keeping something up for 15 million people but that's the short answer we don't really have products we we are a, a weird hybrid of a tool a lot of people just use emojipedia as an emoji search tool like a web app and a lot of other people use it like wikipedia as research humor people just i see a lot of people got a random emoji button on the site and some users you can track in the analytics are just there for hours and hours just going through every emoji because they all have a backstory every emoji some of them don't have much but some of them there's the the guy the man in business suit levitating you've seen this guy he's got a shadow beneath him and he to cut a long story short but he was included in windings and webdings at microsoft because one of the designers there liked this scar band and he was on the cover of the scar band Mm -hmm. and unicode added a bunch of webdings and windings characters so he became an emoji so there's a lot of these characters that have quite a long history of documentation and people just find it amusing but to answer the question advertising is how we make money and effectively therefore we have a publisher model that more page views mean more 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 money you guys are in a good business when you're at uh, newspaper conferences. Business model is the first question, always. <laughs> um, this is at MailChimp. Can you talk a little about your merchandising? I know it's not merchandising in the sense that you sell it, but yeah. what does it do for you and what's good about it? Um, we actually have this... Well. <laughs> That's the only reason you asked the question. Uh, <laughs> um, so there's actually some philosophy behind it. Um, we, I mean, we used to attend conferences, you know, a lot, like you know everyone else, and we would oftentimes go and, and see. We wouldn't have booths there. I mean, I don't know why. It's just something culturally we just never felt inclined to do. And we would go and we would see like all the other things that companies would make and they would and they would do. And we kind of felt like, in a way, that if we were going to do this, we wanted it to be something that people really loved and they wanted to keep and they wanted to maybe put on their desk or they were like, they were, you know, they'd wear it. Like they'd really actually want to wear the T-shirt like out and around or they'd want the Freddy on their desk. And so we just decided that if we were going to do this, we were really going to invest in it and we weren't going to do it cheap. Uh, we wanted it to be valuable. Uh, I mean, like these final Freddies, I mean, we like, we get nothing from them. Um, but they're so fun and people find such delight, uh, out of them. They're obviously very expensive, but that's where that comes from. I think it's also tricky for us because we can't really, it, it's like a business accounting tax thing, but we are not product people like outside of software so we can't really people oftentimes ask us why don't we sell t-shirts and stuff and it's just it just doesn't jive with what we do so anytime we do it and sell stuff we always give all the money away to uh, charities okay anyone else hi um, so as designers, uh, there is uh, a lot of taste involved, and when you when you create something and show it to people, they might not agree with you. Yeah. Have it, Have you ever had really horrible feedback, and how did you uh, <laughs> tackle it? <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. Good question. I, I'm actually trying to think of a good example of when. I don't yeah. know of anyone just right now. Off the you mean like of myself, per, like like personally speaking, or like anyone, or? Yeah. 
Um, well, I have had creative directors tell me that like that my work sucked and that it was horrible. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had that experience. I think everyone has at some point in their oh, career. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so much sub- subjectivity in design yeah. um, that I think the first thing you need you, you learn at least after getting your work ripped apart over and over again um, is that. <laughs> that's valuable, and maybe you should consider those opinions. Um, but you know, you just have to roll with it. You know, you, if you trust your intuition and you're, you know, at least willing to grow, uh, I think you're going to be okay. I don't know. I've never really like. It's definitely yeah. been like a few dark evenings, just like really questioning whether I was yeah. a designer or not. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you get around to it. Yeah. Figure it out. I mean, it's something you learn because I mean, I know from past like. I'm now in a position where now I'm coaching and I'm trying to lead people and like one of my biggest jobs really at the end of the day is to make the designers better. I'm trying to make them better designers. I'm trying to help them not just think about interface and not just think about the shade of a button or whether this should have a drop shadow or not or anything like that. It's all about having training them to think more laterally, horizontally across the entire experience like I was talking about yesterday. Changing like... I actually did this when um, recently where uh, everyone were, was called UI designers before. Like, we were actually segmented into teams of, like, UX and UI, which is, sounds very clean and nice and everything. But then it just makes it sound like the designers, all they care about is what the interface looks like. Okay. And it's by no means just that. So we cha- we got rid of it all, and now everyone is just product designers. Yeah. Because I want them to focus on the product and to be thinking about the entirety of it and what their contribution is. Um, so yeah, that was a rambly answer, but that's what I work on. That's I think that's important too. I, I think it's also I want to circle back and say like what's made me grow the most in my career is bad feedback or feedback, yeah. especially when it was warranted. And I think yeah. a lot of it ties into as you're growing as a product designer. You know, I worked at an agency that was very focused on like the polish. You know, especially in the early mid 2000s, where it's like. Um, you know, a lot of drop shadows, a lot of 10-stop gradients on buttons, like all that really like finicky shit that mm-hmm. doesn't really matter to anybody but the designer doing it. And I think like getting broken out of that cycle was, you know, it came through a lot of feedback. It came through a lot of like growth. But it was always bad feedback that got me out of that and got me thinking like a product person. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think that's... Could I just hold you on to that polished thing there? I mean, it's interesting because we're talking, this discussion is very much about how to engage users, basically, engage in a conversation. But what we're talking about mostly is attitude, voice, tone, and less about design. Mm-hmm. And is there something, I'm just thinking from, from my business, where in news, like the way Huffington Post, the BuzzFeed is almost undesigned and looks like HTML from the 90s. <laughs> there is something in that very unpolished that's open for engaging. It's, it's, yeah. it's not, it doesn't have that thing very polished and closed yeah yeah i mean some people say that like the drudge report is the best design news site on the internet yeah, yeah. i don't know if you all know what that site is yeah. but yeah there's definitely something there. so there's something about design getting in the way also also absolutely oh, yeah. yeah oh i mean you know so when i worked at uh, i'll give a little story but when i worked at that agency before i worked at slack uh, it was an agency called metal lab and um you know we one of the things that we were good at was bringing a lot of polish to the product stuff. Um, not to say that it got in the way, um, but there was definitely like this push or this pull to be like, you, especially when working on Slack, for example, you want people to feel comfortable spending all day in this thing. Um, 
designers love very simple, minimal, stripped down, like RDO when Wilson Miner designed it type work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree, it was absolutely beautiful. They did have a lot of album art to sort of flesh it out. But, you know, we see that and we like it aesthetically, so we imitate. That doesn't necessarily feel comfortable to, you know, a million people. In fact, software that is represented that way, so polished, so like every little detail thought out, often can feel like a little too austere or a little too finicky and they don't want to really touch it or spend much time in it or it feels confusing. So I think like an important part of understanding where polish can come in because I think it is very important still, um, but it's just getting in that mind frame that we as designers have a bias, like a massive bias because we have spent all our years pulling in patterns, pulling in like aesthetics and really trying to like execute on those and you lose a lot of what the first eyes look like when you do that and I think it's important to be able to uh, articulate as well a little with a little bit less polish. It's also what Mo- Emojis does I mean they, they're just breaking that polish it, they don't fit in in a design Yeah they're their own thing and you know what the what we get the most passionate responses about is when we design our own version of the next set of emojis and people get very very involved we had the this year there's an emoji called the shallow pan of food but it's effectively a paella from spain and i was getting death threats over how we designed that based on the ingredients <laughs> of people in spain they're <laughs> saying i will see you burning in hell for the ingredients that we put in there because it's something they cared about yeah. um, and but and overwhelmingly, no matter what we do, it's that one. When people say, here's a name and here's how you drew it, yeah, they, they care. People get, Phew. I think we're going to get a last round of questions, and it might be a lot of questions, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. Final round <laughs> could be a long round. It's okay. Uh, just don't don't hold back now, because then you'll sit back with questions you didn't never had the chance to get an answer for. And we're here all day, too, so yeah, yeah. feel free to yeah, come right. up and talk. So. Well, I'm, talk to do. Just, going <laughs> back, <laughs> just going back to the question of um, emojis in connection with language in communication. I'm, I'm a late adopter of emojis. I use, you know, the, the, the pretty basic vocabulary. I have a vocabulary about, you know, a, a young child, but also I have people in my, uh, on my Twitter feeds, uh, etc., that are doing some really, really expressive stuff with emojis. So do you think as we as cultures and subcultures actually master the vocabulary and, you know, start expressing more complex thoughts that you are going to get a more, you know, almost poetic uh, side to the emoji use uh, is that something you're th- you're considering and, and and thinking about at Emojipedia? It definitely is. I mean, that's we look at the two parts in a way. We don't distinguish on the site, but effectively we'll try and describe. Here's what it was meant to be about, and here's how people use it. And it happens in different geographies, though. That different countries pick up their own alternative meanings. I don't think there's ever going to be a universal. Hey, we think this. This nail polish emoji, people use that for sort of nonchalance in the US in particular, kind of like, did uh, I just owned you with, <laughs> with what I just said. But, th- but that's not universal. That doesn't happen in other countries. So we try and list what's going on, and we're trying to do a bit more crowdsourcing as well to try and pick up, let other people submit what, what how they use it. Right now it's editorial. I literally make the decisions about what I think is representative. But... Yeah, it's fun. Uh, the, another one you've, I've seen creeping up is the Kermit with the with the sipping the tea. It's a meme that you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, but that's none of my business. Uh-huh. People do it in emoji form with the frog and the teacup. <laughs> so, so there's fun. Yeah, there's absolutely room for creativity, poetry. There's all that, and I think there's infinite amount of time that we can't document it all. Hopefully, we can get a bit more crowdsourcing going on because. That's just going to go on forever. There's always going to be new meanings for that. And that's the fun. That's what people like about it. Emoji's fun. 
Um, I have one question for the feature of emojis. So, for example, Skype and Facebook, they have some animations. Um, and I noticed that uh, the emojis are fixed images, and they, they are designed in a re really reduced scale. So now, for example, what, um, uh, WhatsApp have the emojis a little bigger for the user to see it better. Are you planning to make animations with emojis? Uh. So technically, emojis are fonts, really. You could have different emoji fonts on my own computer. I've got the Apple emoji font, and I've got a black and white emoji font. And you can't really change it on mobile, but technically in future, there's nothing stopping someone coming up with some kind of animated font technology. I mean, it could be done. Or you could just have on the web or Slack or MailChimp, or someone could on the web replace, when you see this character, we're going to show this animation. So it could technically be done today. It's just... Who want, it, they sort of got the gatekeepers of who's Apple. Who's going to go first? Yeah, who's going to do it first? Is it going to make people mad? Uh, I suspect a lot of people are going to get very annoyed. It would have to be, in my mind, an extra, an extra thing that if, or just a fun service that does it. But I can't imagine the actual keyboard. Imagine if they're all dancing when oh, you're going through the keyboard and they're all jumping around. Uh, that would be be like the early web again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I don't know. So I, I don't expect it, but it technically is possible. So we we, we might. Um, I've got a question for MailChimp, mm -hmm. actually. Um, what do you see the future for newsletters? Because with the communication changing to using more emojis and people using Facebook with shorter texts, as well as Twitter with 140 characters, mm -hmm. what's the future for newsletters that used to be very content-heavy? Will they be slimmed down, or what do you think? Email is a funny thing because um, it's it's very much dependent on compatibility and on what um, on what email clients can support. So you know you can send an email and it can appear in Gmail or Outlook or Mail or you know your mobile client. There's there's just so many different ways for it to appear. So in some ways, the potential and the possibilities of what we can do with the design of an email is limited by the output of where it appears on the client side. Um, that said, I think future-based, um, we're starting to see more emails that are starting to incorporate things like web fonts in them. Uh, we're starting to see people do more like web page style designs where they have almost like fluid images that extend all the way across instead of everything always being 600 pixels wide all the time. Uh, which I think is really exciting. We have, we've seen a number of people create uh, email newsletters that when you actually open it in a browser, like if you go to the campaign archive and look at it, it actually looks like a web page. Uh, it's just in your email client, it's been so perfectly designed to be responsive and scaled down so well. Um, so we're keeping an eye on those things. We're waiting for, for browser, not browser, but email client compatibility to improve. Uh, Gmail is improving. Outlook is improving. Gmail just announced the other day, actually, that they're starting to support media queries now uh, in their code, which is amazing. And, like, we've been wanting that for so long because <laughs> the vast majority of people now actually read email on their mobile devices. They're not doing it on laptops and desktops anymore. So it's super important. But, but but there's a more radicalized version of the question. Are you, I mean, are, are the most friendly mm -hmm. company on the internet in trouble? I mean, yeah. since mail uses changing with generations. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, it's something that uh, when we're thinking about, you know, the future growth of the company and where we're going, I think kind of a nice way to think about it is to kind of remove 
you know, we're an email marketing company, but if you really drill into what that means, the, the higher version of that is we're a marketing company, and email is the medium that we use and, and is what we were founded on. Our mission and our values are still the same, which is to help people grow their business, help them communicate, help them market their products. And whether it's email or anything else is, you know, we don't, it's not something that, um, that we're so committed to that we're going to, you know, go down with the ship if email, like, someday, someday <laughs> dies or something. It's not like that at all. Our heart and our soul is still in marketing and help people uh, look pro and to grow in what they do. So we could take a number of different avenues in the future. Um, we've been talking a lot about fun and uh, funny experiences. Um, have you ever thought about using different kinds of emotions than... For example, angry people or <laughs> sadness. Sadness in your communication. It's that's funny, by the way. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> Pretty much. Expression, yeah. <laughs> Just click the damn button. Um, I've always wanted to write that in a UI. Just wasn't it there? I like, like Trello did that recently, where it's like, yeah. There was a button, and it's like if you clicked anywhere outside of it, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and then once you, uh, and then it's just like an arrow points to it. And it's like you have to be kidding me. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I guess to your point, it's kind of a brand question too. I mean, that was one of the things we discussed when we standardized on the wink. It was like, well, what if we're sponsoring an event or sponsoring something that's actually kind of a serious topic and you have this winking monkey? You know, that's not very cool. So, I mean, that's kind of like the places where we do rely on the secondary mark we have, which is the script mark. And um, so, yeah, that's something we, we try to be sensitive to for sure. I was thinking about banks as well. I mean, what kind of feelings do they want to invoke? Yeah. Comfort, security. Yes, stability. Yeah, availability, like generally just structural integrity, Mm -hmm. Um, not playfulness. And, hey, you kind of went over your balance last month. No biggie, though. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah, which is why a lot of bank logos tend to be like these geometric interlocking shapes and stuff, right? I mean, they're supposed to feel like they're tight and they're well made and they're solid and your money isn't going anywhere so like Chase Bank and people like that yeah, yeah. for sure uh, yeah uh, a while back you, you mentioned that the uh, sin that we all committed like 10 years ago was having uh, having uh, having these uh, very uh, over designed drop uh, shadows <laughs> What would you say are what would you say are some of the common uh, sins that the the designers commit n- uh, nowadays? Where ten years in the future we will look back and say, oh, we we shouldn't have. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. that's a really good question. I. Uh, I might step on toes, but <laughs> sorry. I think no, no. It's good. I think that like um, animation. Um, you know, it definitely was like a crux because once we all went flat design, people were like, well, it's got no personality anymore and therefore we need to start like using After Effects to make these incredibly elaborate animations that are not really friendly for any like accessibility reasons, but also like over the top and kind of getting past the point of the design. I think over embellishing on that sort of like motion design um, and a lot of like over the top materiality um, is 
kind of they kind of run in the same vein. Um, that's that's it for me. Um, or maybe just like. I don't know. It, it's been pretty hard for folks to break out of the... Um, and it was interesting to talk today about the logos and how it all looked like the periodic table of elements on, on our iPhones. Um, I think shortening your iPhone application icon to a letter and a color um, will definitely look back on and be like... <laughs> Bad time. <laughs> <laughs> One design trend that I see that is um, really, really hard to do well is like I'm seeing a lot of designers now that are taking typography and running it over bitmap images so that when you scroll a page, it's like the type is still on top of what's happening underneath it, and it's almost like intentionally done. It's a very stylistic choice. The problem is, is that when that's converted into other languages, the words sometimes get bigger, they sometimes get smaller, and sometimes you could end up with words you can't even read because it's all kind of bleeding and layered and all of this. And that's a really hard style to, to pull off, but I, I don't know how long that's going to stick around. Um, this is a question for you, Brandon. Mm -hmm. um, with messaging apps uh, having been around for decades, what do you think is the core need that Slack... Um, kind of meets that wasn't fulfilled before? Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot to this, and there's hopefully going to be a lot more to it. Uh, but, you know, centralizing your communication in one place. Like, messaging apps, sure, have been around forever. We've used different variations of them for a very long time. Um, but Slack, the combination of centralizing the communication, um, being, like, an easy-to-search, like, uh, repository of all your team's information being very useful. But not only that, but it's it's containing all not only your messages, but messages from the tools that you use. And like the increasing amount of tools that you're able to use and that stream in those messages in either like ported places where you pop them into a channel or like into a channel, like that sort of availability instead of context switching between all these different apps you use, but having this funnel of, you know, very organized searchable information in one place is the start. You know, obviously there's more that we can do there and make workplaces a lot better and larger workplaces a lot you know more efficient and and productive but um, to me that's the difference um, it's everything you need and everything your team uses in one place I would actually add to that because I'm actually a big Slack fan um, because we actually use uh, other clients in addition to Slack, and I, I don't know what it is, if it's the typography or if it's the white space or the character, but there's always just something about Slack that like people react to, I notice. Yeah. yeah. There's that too. We need to have to talk about the lack of vacation respond afterwards, but um, we'll just keep <laughs> up with the questions. You have one? Um, going back to feedback, um, how do you handle change aversion and mm. not going into depression and balancing what users say they want versus what they actually need? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, there's always going to be change aversion to anything you do, especially when you have like a, an ever-growing user base. Um, there's definitely room to be really courageous and, and stick through it, and you know there's there's room to like push and and push to keep things that really do have value. I think one of the things that designers will constantly and likely struggle with forever is that, um, and I hate keep continuing to bring up biasing, but like that something to us seems so obviously better in one case, but it does not test well. Users don't like it, complain about it, find that they're less productive, like the move my cheese thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think it's getting over that, and it's not like it's not like you can't have a moment of sadness. But I think it's it's pretty easy through user testing or through um, trying to have like as open of a lens as possible to step back and realize like where that might be coming from or where that concern might be. Um, it's a lot easier when you're being a little more incremental with your work. Of course, like no matter what you do, if you do a full fledged redesign, like you're kind of hooped. You're going to get a lot of complaints. Or if you're Facebook and you change your timeline about that much, uh, there's going to be people creating a group that is. 1 million likes to have Facebook roll back this change. <laughs> um, they don't really ever change it back, luckily. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. That's not really an answer, um, except for, you know, try and be as empathetic as possible to the people that are actually having trouble using that software. I'll throw in one additional uh, footnote on that one, is that one thing that we notice is that a lot of times people are complaining about a particular feature or something that they think could be improved, and sometimes that ends up as a bug on the engineering team, and the engineering team is, is tasked with resolving it, where actually if the design team looks at it, we tend to pick stuff apart and we try to think about what the real problem is that someone is experiencing. What is the true thing that they're trying to do? It's probably not the thing they're actually describing. It's probably something much bigger. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I think we'll do three more questions. And, uh, yeah, I know it'll be like that, but we'll, so, someone <laughs> will, will make that choice and then we'll stay up here. So these three white males will stay and stay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and you're more than welcome to do bilateral negotiations with them afterwards. <laughs> so, um, let's do the next three questions. Um, okay, let me be the judge. Oh, you have one already. I'm not the judge. This is this is for Todd. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, did you ever receive any negative feedback or criticism on your tone, like the humorous tone of or from the users of Mailchimp? Not so much negative. It's more just kind of. I think confused sometimes people don't I think I think people come and they're, they're just like I'm just trying to send a newsletter like I'm just trying to do business and what is all this crap like I don't <laughs> I don't get it yeah so for some people it's just kind of an annoyance I think I think we hear that sometimes of like 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 yesterday when I was talking about how we put the butt on the login page and people were kind of like man WTF like what is this you know <laughs> so it's a fine line yeah it's it's not so much outrage or anything like that but yeah more annoyance I would say um are you more white males <laughs> so what are the hardest thing of managing and creating designer design teams so basically <laughs> What, what is the hardest thing about growing a team and those types of things? So, yeah, like product teams want, want their own part, engineers want their own part, so how do you, uh, like internally and externally in, in, in a, inside of the company, so basically? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways we could go with this, but I mean, I feel like, at least from our perspective, something that we have learned and something that we have really experimented with is what is the role of design at MailChimp, just in general. You know, are we a department? Are we like an agency within a big company? Are we distributed and embedded within engineering teams? Um, what is that relationship like? I think one of the, just to give an example, one of the things that we learned as a team, uh, and something that I've been trying to teach people, is that oftentimes we'll have meetings where we're like looking at some new feature that we're thinking about doing, something that research exposed. 
And of course, the designers on my team like want to make like the most polished looking thing, and they like make something that looks awesome, you know. And we come in the room, and it's like going to a funeral, like with engineers. And engineers look at it, and they're kind of like, "Well, obviously, you have all the ideas, so you know, why don't you take the lead?" For you know, and they feel excluded because it's so pixel perfect and so tight mm-hmm. that they don't feel like they can contribute to the process at all. They feel like we've already sorted out all the problems. So it's a weird thing for me to instruct, but I've actually been asking designers on the team, like, put down Sketch, put down Photoshop, don't even open these tools. I want you to draw this thing, and we're going to go into this meeting with a drawing. It's going to look like crap. I don't care, like, what your skills are like, but the sheer fact that it's a drawing just opens the door, and people automatically feel involved at that point. An engineer or a CEO or anyone else looks at it, and they say, oh, it's obviously unfinished. Like, I can contribute to this, and I feel like they will find some value in what I have to say, whereas otherwise it feels too siloed. Um, It's a very – it was an interesting thing that we detected. So I think to answer your question, that is the skill I'm trying to teach is not just how to be pixel perfect, but when to be pixel perfect. Mm -hmm. And that's usually towards the end of a development cycle. Early, messy as hell. Like, I love it when it's messy. Absolutely. I, I can echo that, too. And I think that, um, you know, the way the way that we work, and I'll talk a little bit about this later at 4 o'clock. Um, <laughs> so come on out. Um, it all. Yeah. Come on down. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we embed designers very closely with product managers and engineers. Everybody is a part of, like, a team, a smaller team. Um, and just the fact, the nature that we use Slack for everything, when we start a feature, you're in a channel with the people that are going to be working on it. It's not necessarily at a very high fidelity state. In fact, it could be a problem statement, and those people will be like, you know, tossing around ideas, having like healthy arguments in that room, and getting to a point where we all feel like we understand the problem and we're ready to start executing. I'm lucky enough to have like, you know, I I don't do much management anymore, um, but uh, the team was really wonderful with that. We have such a naturally collaborative design team that that was a welcome change. We used to operate very much like a silo in the middle and when a project came in, we're like, uh, you and you. So, but it just like, you know, with scale, it becomes impossible. Um, yeah. I think, uh, and it silos designers a little bit too much and they, it does get to that point where you get too high fidelity too early and then, yeah. you know, you're kind of stuck and you get too attached at that point and don't want to reverse. I actually kind of hate the whole idea of like a designer being someone who just works in sketch and yeah. visuals and things. I see front-end engineers as very much being designers as well. Yeah. I mean, especially once you have a, a defined pattern library, you've got all the bricks, you know how to put something together. Front-end engineers can code in browser and be just as creative, if not more creative and a better designer than um, than a true, someone who has designer in their job title. Yeah. So, one last question. I expected the last one to be informal, have a certain tone of voice, uh, <laughs> <laughs> an attitude, and a feeling, please. Hi, this is to all three of you. If you could name or describe one emoji you feel that is missing in the Emojipedia right now, what would that be? And of course, you know one all 1,800 of them, right? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Good. Right here. After you guys, I'd love to. I'd love to hear. Uh, I I, uh, Do you have artichoke lamps in there? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Very beautiful. Yeah. There was a certain food that I remember that I was so shocked was not in the emoji library, and I really can't remember what it was. Get a bit of feedback sometimes that the food and drink icon on iOS has a, a soda bottle on there, but there isn't one. Uh, I'm not a big 
soda drinker, but a lot of people are annoyed that that's on the icon for the food and drink, but it's not actually that's in there. That's a question. That might have been the hardest one. <laughs> <laughs> for me, uh, can I, I'll give, if, if you guys you want some time yeah. yeah. um, One I, One that's been approved, but it's not on iOS yet, that I'm very much looking forward to, the fingers crossed, because how often are you, you know... Fingers crossed. Good luck. Oh, um, yes. That was so, so that's already been approved, but it's not on my phone yet. Uh, as for one that I would particularly like, uh, someone in the room just mentioned this just before, and it's been something that's annoyed me for quite a long time, is how badly done the hug is, that it looks like jazz hands. And again, sympathy, it would be great to have a real hug. MSN used to have a great hug where it was there were two of them, one face this way and front, one face that way, so you could send a hug to someone and then they could send you the opposite hug back. It was, it was great. I, I would love that if that was a possibility. Oh, it was fingers crossed. We have, oh. it, we have it in our internal Slack team. Yeah. Like, we have a Fingers crossed emojis. Yeah, yeah. I just use it all the time. And then when I try and use it on my phone, it's not there. I'm like, what, what's this year's list added a lot that I'm going to use? Face palm, shrug. Very good. So, yeah. yeah. And you're not going to come up with an answer. Am I, am I right? For some reason, my brain just went to the sarcasm HTML tag. Like, I'm still waiting for that tag. I've been wanting one for so long. Um, so that's my answer. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for being here. Give him a hand. Thanks.